Uh, well, good morning, church. Um, a delight to be with you this morning. Uh, if you've just dropped in uh, to church today, uh, we've been going through a series in the book of Romans, and we're up to Romans um, in this passage today, verses 21 to 26 of chapter uh, 3. Um, if you grabbed one of the orders of service on the way in, you should find a small outline um, that you'll help, hopefully will help with your time together today. I'm, I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we'll uh, spend some time looking at this passage together. Uh, let me pray. Uh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks powerfully, uh, that speaks to our lives in this present moment, uh, shaping and molding us such that we might live as those who are known and loved by you. We pray this morning that you might speak to us in a, in a way that uh, meets us in the very moment we find ourselves in in this life, whether we find ourselves filled with despair or anxiety, or maybe even uh, joy and hopefulness, uh, despite where we find ourselves, uh, speak to us, uh, that we might know you as the, as the true and living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was over 25 years ago, but I, I still remember it as if it was yesterday. Um, I, I went to a school where you did cadets, cadets like mini, mini army rangers kind of thing, where you learn to march around and salute and do all that kind of thing. And I was at the moment where I was hopefully going to get promoted to a different rank. And I had to lead this kind of drill time and, and give instructions as to what people were to do and then, and then to kind of direct them. And I remember getting to that moment and then having a mental blank. I didn't know what to say, though I was the one in charge. I felt so embarrassed. Someone had to say, uh, give me a prompt to kind of figure it out. In many ways, I can't even remember what happened now, but it's kind of just stuck in my mind. Uh, that one mistake that I can kind of never get past or think of again. And maybe you found yourself replaying some kind of mistake in, in your head. Uh, maybe it was at work and you stuffed up a presentation and you're sure that everyone else noticed. Or maybe as a parent, you find yourself losing it at your kids in a cafe. Or maybe a bad financial decision that has cost you deeply. And in so many ways, as you think about these moments when you've made a mistake, you, you want to try to forget it, but it, it's like on constant replay. You, you can't shake it. And so the question is, what would it look like to live with a sense of, of peace? That even though you had these moments, you found a sense of inner calm, maybe able to learn from your error, or even find a, a way to kind of walk through this sense of chaos that comes as you think about these moments. I think as we look at our passage today, we kind of see the, the profound and powerful difference that Jesus makes to that very moment. This passage reminds us that our worth is not found in Jesus, in our own actions, but Jesus is alone. If you're taking notes, let me say that again. Uh, that's the idea that I want us to kind of draw our attention to. Our, our worth is found in Jesus' actions, not our own. And when you can kind of see that with, with a fresh crispness, Everything changes, especially in those moments where you made a mistake and you just hope that you could forget it. So three things as we think about this passage this morning. Uh, worth in the eyes of the world, worth in God's eyes, and then living in a new world order. Three things as we think about the difference Jesus makes to our lives. So firstly, worth in the eyes of the world. Uh, there is a, a movie, um, many of you probably haven't seen it, um, though I'm sure maybe some of you have, called Chariots of Fire, a number of years ago. Uh, it, talks, it, um, it, it sort of looks at two different men as they prepare for the 1924 Olympics, the 100 metres. 
There's a man by the name of Harold Abrahams, and he's training for the events. And people go up to him and ask him, what are you working so hard for? What gets you up to train? Abrahams replies, when that gun goes off, I've just 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. I want to suggest that that is the human experience, that is the air that we breathe in each and every one of us, that we long for a moment where we find ourselves worthy, acceptable, maybe not to us, others, but ourselves. We feel like we belong. Uh, some of you might have heard of a, a, a man by the name of Sidney Pollock. He was a film director, a producer, and there was a newspaper article about him. Uh, let me read to you part of the article. It said, uh, movie mogul Sidney Pollock says that although the grueling filmmaking process is wearing him down, he can't justify his existence if he stops. Pollock said, every time I finish a picture, I feel I've earned my stay for another year or so. Abraham's performance became the currency of his justification. Pollock's movies became the currency of his justification. It's by these things I know I'm worthy, I'm valuable. My suggestion to you this morning is that each and every one of us is longing for that sense of feeling worthy, of feeling acceptable before others and before ourselves. And maybe for the mother, her record becomes her children. It's their good behavior, their sporting prowess, their academic performance that becomes the currency of her justification. For the manager, his record is his work, exceeding sales targets, increasing the number of direct reports, delivering projects on time and under budgets. These become the currency of his justification. Maybe for the friend, it's others' acceptance of them that becomes their record. When others praise them and acknowledge them and include them in their group, when others gossip about others but not them, the praise of others becomes the currency of their justification. See, in many ways, the currency of your justification can be about anything. Your beauty isn't your beauty, your money isn't your money, your relationships aren't just relationships. They're ways in which we find ourselves accumulating enough, having enough, so that we feel we're worthy, we're valuable, that we belong. And what happens before God? One be on our outlines. In a world that tells us what you have, what you do, contributes to whether you belong or not, then before God we think there are actions, our obedience becomes the currency of God's blessing to us. God's acceptance, His his willingness to love us will come upon us if I can just prove I'm worthy, I'm good enough. And if you've been at Grace Point for the last couple of months, you'll see that Paul in Romans 1 to 3 has been establishing in many ways the futility of this idea. Last week, chapter 3, verse 9, everyone is under sin's power And so the law isn't something that you can use to demonstrate your worth, but ultimately something that condemns you. Chapter 3, verse 20. Romans 1 to 3 is a reminder. There is no one righteous. There is no one worthy, no one acceptable before God. No one. You might have just dropped in today and you're feeling this has been intense. What do you mean? No one's good. No one's worthy of God's blessing. Surely I, I do something good enough. Can I encourage you to spend some time reading maybe Romans 1 to 3 with someone here? I'm sure they'd love to do that with you. 
maybe watch previous messages from Grace Point, it's on YouTube, because we are reminded in chapter 3, verse 22, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, Paul reminds us in our passage today that your sin disqualifies you from being worthy of God's blessing. Your sin ultimately condemns you to God's righteous wrath and judgment. The future for all that sin face eternal suffering, torment, and anguish apart from God's loving presence. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Well, verse 21 in our passage. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God has provided us a way that we might enjoy His blessing, uh, to remove sin that disqualifies us, to declare us righteous, worthy of His love. God has provided that way through Jesus. So this leads us to point two of our outlines, worth in God's eyes. Uh, Paul tells us of a wonderful new status we can have with Jesus. He tells us in our passage two words that I just want to use for a moment. This idea that you are justified and you are righteous. Uh, they're slightly different, but quite similar. And so let's quickly explain them before we move on. Uh, verse 24, we're told that we're justified, or we can be justified by faith in Jesus. Uh, this is the words of a courtroom where you are declared not guilty, where you're acquitted, where you're declared innocent. In many ways, uh, these words are fairly cold. They're a factual reality of what has happened. But in verse 22, Paul tells us we are also righteous. You might want to think of this, these not like the words of the courtroom, but maybe the words of a relationship. Description of a moral perfection in relationship to someone else that reflects the warmth of that relationship. You're welcome. You're accepted into relationship with me. Such words are filled with a sense of warmth and beauty. It's these two words that shape the very reality of our beings. It's the new status we have by faith in Jesus. Uh, status is an interesting thing. You can get all kinds of privileges as you, um, as you accrue a status. Um, if, you're a, if you're a manager here at work, um, you might be able to get to fly business class. Probably not these days, but in, in, in yesteryear, you were able to fly business class when other plebs flew economy. Uh, you get an assistant to do your expenses while other people slave away photocopying their own receipts. Uh, you get a company car while other people have to slum it on public transport. Uh, as a status as a manager, you get certain perks and privileges. And the way you get such status is that you work for it, you earn it. Your performance buys you this status. But in this passage, we're reminded that this new status that, that believers have in Jesus is not something that we earn, not something that we work for, but something that we are given freely. That's what I want to look at right now. So two-way, our status is gifted, not earned. God's people were always blessed, not through their work, but through the work of another. God's people were rescued from famine through the faithfulness of Joseph in Genesis. God's people were given victory from the Philistines because of David over Goliath. God's people ultimately forgiven because of what Jesus has done. See, if you understand the story of the Bible right from the very beginning in Genesis 3, that God promises to send a saviour, someone that will destroy God's enemies and restore people into a relationship with God. 
And Paul reminds us of that in the passage, doesn't he? Verse 21. See, the law and the prophets talk about this reality. The law and the prophets don't give us this this outline of what it means to obey God such that we may earn God's blessing. That's not the plan of Scripture. The plan of the Scripture from the very beginning has been to tell of this one that will come and save and rescue and restore. Everything points forward, not to doing it yourself, but to trusting another, trusting in Jesus. And that's why when Jesus talked to the religious leaders of the day, He said this in John 5.39, You study the Scriptures diligently, because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about Me. Um, I mentioned that I studied overseas for Bible college, um, and it never happened to me, but I was told um, that there were times in which, uh, when you did Hebrew or Greek, uh, you could anoint um, what they called a federal head. And that's just the nerdy biblical term for someone that becomes the representative. And so that person would be the representative for the whole class. They would take the test on behalf of everyone else. What they got, everyone else got. So who would you choose in this congregation to be your federal head, to be the one that would take a Bible trivia quest, quiz for you? You know, you're looking around now, who can you trust? Who wouldn't you trust? Interesting, right? One person, their record for everyone else. Never happened to us. But you always kind of think, oh, would I, would I, who, who would I trust? See, Paul here in our passage is redirecting our focus away from ourselves and to the one that earns the credit and status for us. Your hope is not in what you do, but in what someone else has done for you. Your hope is in Jesus. And so we might want to pause for a moment and just ask the very simple question. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, do you trust in someone else's work, in Jesus' work, instead of your own? Do you trust in Jesus instead of yourself? In your sinfulness, do you feel despondent and vie to try harder the next time? In your sinfulness, do you think God grimaces in disappointment as He sees what you've done? In your faithfulness, do you feel more confident that God is delighting in you? If the answer is yes to any of those questions... My suggestion is that maybe you've lost sight of Jesus. That though you might say you trust in Him, you're starting to focus on what you've done, what you do. There's a lot to unpack there. If you want to chat more after, more than happy to. But our status is gifted, not earned. That's what Paul reminds us of in our passage. But we move on to part B of point two. Our status comes by substitution. Verse 24, we're reminded... That our justification, being justified, comes through Jesus. How is that possible? Well, look with me in our passage, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. If you have a physical Bible, maybe even if you have a digital one, you'll see a footnote here under the sacrifice of atonement. Uh, The footnote reads, well, in my Bible, it reads, the Greek for sacrifice of atonement refers to the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant, see Leviticus 16. Uh, To help us understand what Paul is talking about here, uh, we need to go back to understand what Leviticus 16 is talking about. Leviticus 16, so the third book of the Bible, the Old Testament, we read about the Day of Atonement. It was this yearly ritual that God gave to His people Israel. 
in many ways, a total reset in which people and places were cleansed from defilement and sin. Sacrifices were made. Animals were held by the high priest who would symbolically transfer the sin of the people onto these sacrifices. And these animals were killed. They died for the sin of God's people so that people didn't need to. People were reminded that forgiveness, that cleansing came through death. And so if you go back to Leviticus 16, and maybe you want to read it later, as part of that yearly ritual, uh, two goats are taken as sacrifices. One goat is killed. That represents the sin of God's people being forgiven and cleansed because it was a sacrifice of blood was shed. And there was another goat. That goat was called the scapegoat. And so what happened is the high priest would lay his hands on the goats and the goat would be led off into the wilderness There was this idea of sin going away. And so what you see in Leviticus 16, this Day of Atonement, this yearly ritual, are two things about people's sin. That God is forgiving sin through blood that has been shed, and the other is God forgetting sin through the goat that disappears. See, Leviticus 16, like all Scripture, points us forward to Jesus The Day of Atonement points forward to what Jesus does. And two things happen, therefore, on the cross. If you have a more literal translation of the Bible, ESV or maybe a CSB version, you might see that Jesus is set forward as a propitiation by His blood in this very same verse instead of the Day of Atonement. To propitiate is to turn away the anger or the wrath of someone. And so, in these translations, what they're saying is that Jesus' sacrifice turns away God's wrath. And if you've been here with us in Romans 1-3, to you would have heard a number of times that God's wrath is poured out against sinful humanity. For example, Romans 1-18. And so, what happens when Jesus dies on the cross is that His blood satisfies the righteous anger of God. Sin is dealt with. As you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven and God is no longer angry with you. Jesus propitiates or turns away God's anger. But another thing happens on the cross that we see in light of the Day of Atonement. Jesus' death means your sins are wiped away. Your record is cleansed. We just heard one fancy theological term then, propitiate. The other fancy theological term for the day is expiate. Propitiate is to turn away the anger of God Expiate is to cleanse yourself from the sin that we see. It's to wipe clean, to absolve us. Jesus on the cross is that scapegoat that leads with people's sins so that you can stand before God as you trust in Jesus and know that He sees your sins no more. Listen to what Isaiah 1.18 says. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And so do you see here, as Paul is talking about what Jesus has done, he's taking what happened in the Day of Atonement and he's bringing forward to see that in Jesus. God's anger is turned away. Your sins are cleansed. They are no more. Some of you here might be fans of the royal family. Uh, my, lo- my, my wife loves kind of reading about um, all the gossip that happens with the royal family. Uh, and all the gossip really centers around royal scandals, right? When, when royal people don't do what royal people should do. Um, when, they, when they sort of misstep. 
What we see here in Jesus, in many ways, is the ultimate royal scandal. Uh, Jesus, the King of Heaven, steps into the brokenness of this sin-cursed world. He lives a life of perfect obedience. And because of that, he deserves to experience untold blessing and reward, clothed in robes of glory and righteousness. But if you know the story of Jesus, his life ends not in glory but shame. He's stripped naked. He's beaten. He's crucified. Why? Well, Paul tells us as he writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, friend, you are eternally welcomed into the Father's presence because Jesus was cast out in your place. You are forever accepted because Jesus at the cross faced rejection in your place. And you are now clothed with robes of righteousness because Jesus was stripped naked, beaten, and crucified for your sin. What love is this? It would be a mistake to see what Jesus has done on the cross merely as a way that your sin might be forgiven. Because at the cross, Paul reminds us, we now have this wonderful opportunity to be declared just, justified, to be declared righteous. What's the difference between being forgiven and being declared righteous or justified? Uh, Marcus Lone, who was an Anglican minister, put it like this. Uh, The voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You've been let off the penalty which your sin deserved. But the verdict, which means justification, will say, you may come. You're welcome to all my love. In my presence. Uh, see, friends, before God, despite your sin, as you place your hope in Jesus, everything changes. His death means that you can have this opportunity to declare that you're righteous before God, that you may come in welcomed by the loving presence of the Father. This leads us to point three, a new world order. Uh, you see in your passages, right at the beginning, verse 21, uh, the words that start, but now. Uh, some commentators that look at the Bible say, well, this is a rhetorical marker. Uh, what Paul is doing is he's kind of laying down the bad news, and but now he's going to tell you the good news. And, and in, in many ways, that's what we've heard. That's what we heard, haven't we? That we now have this opportunity to be uh, forgiven of our sin, to be uh, drawn to the presence of God because of faith in Jesus. That's true. But what I also think is happening here is that there is a temporal marker. There is a new world order. Previously, righteousness was found as people sought to obey all the commands that God had given. But now they are being reminded that there is this new hope and new faith in Jesus that changes everything. Chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous live by faith. See, friends, faith in Jesus becomes the currency of the kingdom. Faith in Jesus becomes the currency of the kingdom. Through faith, you take hold of what Jesus has done for you and that you enjoy this this new status of being declared righteous, of being justified. Through faith, you experience God's blessing, His eternal presence and His steadfast love. You might be here this morning and you might not identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. And so you're kind of wrestling with all these things that we've been talking about. But I want you to hear this morning that God invites you to a life of rest, 
where you no longer need to demonstrate that you're worthwhile, that you are acceptable. You don't need to have the burden of having, proving yourself. Before God, there is this opportunity to hear those wonderful and profound words. You may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. What does it take to hear those words without having to do anything? Well, Paul tells us faith in Jesus. And faith that He died in your place, taking the punishment of your sin. You might be hearing that and you go, well, I still have questions. I mean, am I really that bad? What about all the good things I've done? Don't they count for anything? You might be thinking, well, it seems a bit barbaric that Jesus would have to die. Can't, can't God just forgive? These are really good questions. And I'm pretty sure that if a friend brought you here, or if you knew someone, that they would love to talk more about these questions. Can I encourage you to do that? Or if you have no friends, which I hope you do, um, come chat with me after. I'd love to have a chat more. Uh, But if you're here this morning and you you would identify as a follower of Jesus, uh, can I encourage you to live out your life in this new world order using the currency of the kingdom that is faith? How do you know when you're using the currency of the kingdom? How do you know when you're living by faith? Well, in many ways, the answer is really simple. When money is just money, when kids are just kids, when a job is just a job, when a relationship is just a relationship. See, living by faith allows you to live with this profound freedom. You don't need the things of this world in order to to bring yourself to this, this feeling of feeling worthy or acceptable. They're God's good gifts that you enjoy but you don't need them to justify yourself. There is a song uh, by the Gettys that goes like this. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Jesus Christ that flowed at the cross. Uh, It's this wonderful, profound reminder that the things of this world, as good as they are, don't come close to proving ourselves worthy before God. Actually, all we need is faith, faith in Jesus. A life of faith allows you to live with this profound sense of freedom. Because we constantly hear those words, you may come, you are welcome to all my love and my presence. And when we hear those words on repeat in our lives, we live differently. Two ways as we finish today that you'll live differently. The first is how you respond to your mistakes. Here, respond to your mistakes. See, when you lose sight of your righteousness, those wonderful, profound words of God over your life, and when mistakes happen, you so easily become defensive. You minimize the kind of issue that is at hand, and you quickly blame others. And the reason is, because when you fail, when you don't meet your own standards, it becomes a slight against your own worthiness. But see, friend, when you're fueled with your faith, relationships are just relationships. Jobs are just jobs. Money is just money. And you live with this profound confidence that these things don't need to define who we are. It allows us to not have to respond with nervous anxiety in our mistakes, but to live with this, a, a profound peace and calm that God is at work. That's the first way in which your righteousness with God changes your life. You respond to mistakes differently. The second is that you respond to progress differently. You respond to progress differently. See, friends, if you lose sight of your righteousness, when things in life don't go as quick as you really want them to go, 
when your career stalls and you don't get the promotion that you've been working so hard for, when your children are disobedient and instead of listening to your instructions, they just do whatever they want, when your relationship breaks down and maybe it even breaks up, the temptation as we lose sight of our righteousness is to get anxious, to become agitated. We attempt to force things to go along further and further because, well, if they don't, that's an indictment on who we are. But when you're filled with faith, the currency of the kingdom, relationships are just relationships, jobs are just jobs, money is just money. You live with a confidence that these things don't define us, and because of that, even though things are slow or things stall, we faithfully persevere in what God has placed before us, knowing that He is at work. My hope this morning is that you might find your worth not in your actions and what you do, but in what Jesus has done for you, that you might live by faith, and that would change everything. Let me pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for Jesus and what He has done, this, this free gift of being declared justified, forgiven of our sin, being made new. And because of that, we are profoundly thankful but we also recognize that, um, that so often the cry of our hearts is, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, we long to live with faith, and yet so often we find ourselves distracted by the world around us, weakened. And so we pray that you might fuel us in our faith this morning. Um, and in doing that, we might live differently. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.